Dr. Aisha Juman is a public health specialist who works as a consultant on health-related topics in Yemen. She discusses the horrific effects of the Saudi bombing of Yemen and the blockade that is resulting in the starvation of millions. It would not happen without U.S. support. I know for a fact there is no medicine in Yemen because I have family members who need medications and I have to buy the medicine for them from here and ship it, not knowing if it's going to get there or if it will get there. But I have to try. Shia cleric Nimer al-Nimer was executed by the Saudis for speaking out against its abuses. His son Muhammad talks about his father and the history of the House of Saud. If you see what ISIS is doing right now or what they were doing before they lose lots of power, Ibn Saud did the same thing when he formed Saudi Arabia. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Be right back. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. So the Saudis have been war at war in Yemen for three years now. They thought that within two weeks, maximum four weeks, they will win and they will control Yemen. What they had forgotten or decided not to realize is that Yemenis are very fierce and independent fighters. Yemen, especially the northern part, was never colonized throughout its history. Even during the Turkish Empire, they did not control Yemen. So knowing that, they were stupid to think that they can control a country like that in four weeks. And now we are three years, and because they have not been able to win militarily, with U.S. support, by the way, the U.S. government supports them by refueling the air jets that bomb Yemen today. And they also give them intelligence and logistical support. And of course, they sell them arms. So because they realize they could not win through aggression and airstrikes, they're trying to starve the population and make that a weapon of war, which is against international regulations that govern wars. Dr. Aisha Juman is a public health specialist working as a consultant on health-related projects in Yemen. She spoke recently at Portland State University about the war crimes against Yemen by Saudi Arabia that are enabled by the United States. Dr. Juman offered a statistically detailed presentation of the human catastrophe going on in Yemen as a result of the Saudi-imposed war on that ancient country. More than 14 million people require immediate humanitarian assistance and 7 million are at risk of famine. It's crucial to know that the action of Zionists do not reflect the peaceful religion of Judaism, nor do the acts of Wahhabism, as as including their state of Saudi Arabia, reflect in any manner the religion of Islam. Both recent movements, they haven't been here for more than 100 years, were driven by geopolitical interest and that are still seeking short-term benefits from bigger power like United States while disregarding long-term consequences. This is contrary to the religious doctrines of which each claim to follow. Muhammad al-Nimr, the son of Shia cleric Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, who was executed by the Saudis for speaking out against Saudi human rights abuses, also spoke about the history of the formation of Saudi Arabia, its control by the royal family, and the Wahhabism and U.S. complicity in the House of Saud's wars of aggression. I present these two presentations by Dr. Aisha Juman and Muhammad al-Nimr on this special broadcast of Progressive Spirit. I was honored to moderate this discussion sponsored by Seattle-based Roots of Conflict and KBOO Community Radio in Portland at Portland State University on February 3rd. 
Special thanks to David Rogers for recording the event and giving Progressive Spirit permission to edit it for radio broadcast. Salam alaikum. Greetings and welcome. My name is John Schuck, and I'm honored to uh, serve as moderator of this uh, panel discussion. This event is co-sponsored by Roots of Conflict. I'm going to talk about that in just a bit, as well as KBOO Community Radio, KBOO.FM 90.7, celebrating 50 years of independent media in 19, uh, 1968 it started. I host a monthly show, uh, Beloved Community, on KBU and produce a syndicated weekly show, Progressive Spirit, that's produced there. And I'm also a board member of the KBU Foundation. Um, there's plenty of KBU bling, as well as uh, other books and information on the table outside. My professional work is ministry. I'm pastor at Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, and we are fortunate enough to be right across the street from the Islamic Center of Portland whom our communities have mutually enriching relationships. Aristotle said that it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. And the task before us this afternoon is to entertain, that is, open our minds to ideas and information that may be new to us, some may be disturbing information to us. And the second task is to talk about it, to consider it, to evaluate it, and ultimately to continue to research and go where the facts and the truth lead, wherever that may be. Roots of Conflict, ROC, is a group of American Muslims whose primary aim is to educate the American people in regards to Islam and Muslim people from an historical and a political perspective rather than a theological viewpoint. This group hopes that this education will better inform the American people as to the troubled relation that has existed between the United States and the predominantly Muslim countries. The group further hopes that such events can bring Americans together, affecting change in the wrongful and misguided policies of the United States in relation to the Muslim-dominated countries. And lastly, the group hopes to have a think tank as an expert reservoir for government policy decisions which, as is, seems to be based on a lot of false data, including Islamophobia. So the primary vehicle for the group as a starter to reach its goals has thus far been conferences and forums. The group came together when a conference was being staged on November 19, 2016, at the University of Washington, and that was tall, called The Roots of Terrorism, Exposing the Exclusionist Ideology, which focused on the Saudi Wahhabi phenomenon. And since that conference in 2016, the group has staged forums on Syria and Palestine and another conference entitled Heritage of Colonialism in the Arabian Peninsula, which was held March 18, 2017. Today, our speakers are going to describe the roots of the Saudi regime, the wars and the terror it wages in the world and on the Islamic people and the special relationship it enjoys with the West, in particular Britain and the United States that let it get away with some of the worst crimes against humanity. Today, our speakers are Aisha Juman, Yemeni activist, and Mohammed Al-Nemer, activist and son of executed scholar Sheikh Nemer. Uh, there will be a time for questions and answers following the presentation. I am very excited to meet in person and introduce in person our first speaker. Uh, she's been working as an independent consultant in health-related projects since April 2013. She manages and coordinates health-funded projects in Yemen, including the Field Epidemiology Training Program. Uh, she is currently the president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. She lives in Seattle, and she has family in Yemen, and she's going to be talking about the situation in Yemen. Welcome, Aisha Juman. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure be, to be here, and thank you very much for inviting me to speak. Um, I'll be speaking about the war that Saudi had waged in Yemen, but mostly from the humanitarian perspective. 
the data mostly that I have are from U.S. media and from U.N. reports. Uh, and the reason I do this and say this because, of course, I feel very strongly about what's happening in Yemen, and I don't want people to think that my biases influences what I say. Uh, so that's why I stick to U.N. reports and U.S. media reports. This is the map of Yemen, and as you can see, uh, Saudi Arabia is to the south of Yemen. But also Yemen controls the Strait of Mandeb, and that's where 80% of the oil that goes to the world goes through. So Yemen is strategically very important for the world, unfortunately, not for its history or its people. It's for its access uh, to a strait where um, oil goes through. This is Sana'a, which is the city I grew up in, and it's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world and it's also a UNESCO heritage site. So I wanted to start with something beautiful about Yemen because the rest of the presentation is very painful. So the war in Yemen, uh, just to give you a context, this Arab Spring started in January 2011. Uh, president of Yemen resigns in November, and then a new president was elected on one-man race in 2012. The Houthi group that the Saudis are fighting took control of Sana'a in September 2014, a negotiation and put the president under house arrest. The Houthi is a Yemeni group. It's one of many Yemeni groups that are fighting for power. Negotiation of, of the unity government uh, continued with UN support until March 2015 when the UN envoy to Yemen announced that they have reached a conclusion. The next day, the Saudis started airstrikes on Yemen with nine Arab uh, countries. So in terms of the humanitarian crisis, this is up till December. Yemen is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. About 21 million out of 27 million living in Yemen are in need of some sort of humanitarian assistance today. The emergency in Yemen is man-made. It's not catastrophic. Uh, situation deteriorated significantly after the hostilities escalated in March 2015. This is what the UN reports say, but they don't say that it's the, the, in March 2015 is when the Saudi attacked Yemen. More than 14 million people in Yemen require immediate assistance, and there are 7 million people who are at risk of famine today. And this, again, uh, unfortunately, the notes are not uh, clear here. This is from the government of Sweden, the data. So in terms of food imports, I just wanted to show you two graphs, and they have not been updated. The dark uh, column is what we need to commercially import into Yemen for 27 million people. The slither, red one on the top, is what humanitarian assistance brings into Yemen. So look at it. How much of the, what we need into Yemen? Humanitarian assistance is not enough to sustain Yemen. So when they say we need humanitarian access to Yemen, that is not going to sustain Yemen because humanitarian assistance covers less than 1% of the population. We need commercial imports into Yemen, which is now not being allowed by the Saudis. And then it shows how it declined over time and what's allowed into Yemen. And the, the, this next one also shows the light uh, columns as what's needed in Yemen. And then the dark one is what the Saudis are allowing into Yemen. And you can see there is a huge discrepancies of what we need to be available, food, medicine, and fuel in Yemen, and what's being allowed by the Saudis to Yemen. This map shows the red, uh, the red, the red colors means that 25% of the people in these areas are going to die if they don't have a meal a day. The brown color means 25% percent of the people will be starving, not death, but will have severe malnutrition if they don't have a meal a day, which means the whole of Yemen at this point in time are at risk of dying or uh, extreme severe malnutrition. This is um, a, a slide that shows Saudis try to uh, starve Yemen into submission. So the Saudis have been war at war in Yemen for three years now. They thought that within two weeks, maximum four weeks, they will win and they will control Yemen. What they had forgotten or decided not to realize is that Yemenis are very fierce and independent fighters. Yemen, especially the northern part, was never colonized throughout its history. 
even during the Turkish Empire, they did not control Yemen. So knowing that, they were stupid to think that they can control a country like that in four weeks. And now we are three years, and because they have not been able to win militarily, with U.S. support, by the way, the U.S. government supports them by refueling the air jets that bomb Yemen today. And they also give them intelligence and logistical support. And of course, they sell them arms. So because they realize they could not win through aggression and airstrikes, they're trying to starve the population and make that a weapon of war, which is against international regulations that govern wars. This is a slide that I got from the World Food Program, and it's as of January 2018, January 25, which is a few weeks ago. What they said, what is available in Yemen in terms of commercial food commodities available, there is enough in the market in terms of cereal to last Yemen only for 68 days, as of January 25. There is enough rice to last Yemen for 102 days. Uh, and then the, the sugar and the oil, vegetable oil, you know, it's days. If you look at the commercial fuel that's available in Yemen, there is enough to last for diesel to last Yemen for nine days, and for petrol, enough in Yemen to last Yemen for four days. Just think about that. How can a country, a nation of 77, 27 million people, have these statistics and survive? And how can the world be quiet about it? And again, this is purposeful. This is not because we have you know, torrential rains or a tsunami. This is a blockade that's enabled by the US government. This is Jan Egeland. He is the Norwegian director of um, refugee health and aid. He said um, a worker told him when he was visiting a hospital in Yemen that when Yemeni families hear an, an airplane, because there are no airplanes coming into Yemen except the jets that bomb the, the population, people take their kids from the hospital and run away. Why would a family take a sick child and run away from a hospital? Hospitals should not be bombed. But Yemeni had a different experience. Four MSF hospitals were hit by Saudi uh, in Yemen. These are MSF hospitals. 50% of the health centers in Yemen had been destroyed by Saudi uh, airstrikes. Remember when the US, by mistake, bombed an MSF hospital and understand how that was a huge deal? And there was an investigation Four MSF hospitals were hit in Yemen. Not once. They wait until the emergency people come to pick up the wounded and the killed, and then they have a double tap on them. This is another, uh, again, uh, John Eagleman saying that he is in a hospital and there is no medicine. I know for a fact there is no medicine in Yemen because I have family members who need medications, and I have to buy the medicine for them from here and ship it not knowing if it's gonna get there or if it will get there. But I have to try. And I'm one of 27 million people, and I am the lucky one because I can at least help my family with getting their medications. Think of the other people who don't have someone like me trying to assist them, which is the majority of the people in Yemen. So the impact of war and siege on Yemen, this is a, a UNICEF representative who actually was very brave to specifically talk about Saudi effect on Yemen because everybody makes it sound like, you know, it's God sent. Uh, nobody knows who is the culprit here. Uh, he described the airstrike by the Saudi coalition as indiscriminate and, and disproportionate. Uh, UNICEF representative said it, there were over 900 children killed and 1,300 wounded in 2015 and all. And that's only when they started from March. Think about till today how many more were killed. Airstrikes account for 61% of the deaths and injuries. That's of 10,000 children, less than five from preventable diseases. Uh, the country health system is, uh, is, had collapsed, actually. In, in Yemen today, a child dies every 10 minutes from preventable diseases. There is a diphtheria outbreak that is going on in Yemen today. Diphtheria has not been seen in Yemen since the early 80s. There was a cholera outbreak with a million cases. There is no reason to have a cholera outbreak. That's huge in today's world. 
You are naming and shaming arms, armies that kill and maim children. Uh, unfortunately, Saudi was listed twice, but the U.S. and the U.K. managed to pressure the U.N. to remove the Saudis out of the list. So it says Saudi uh, pressure U.N. to remove them from list of children's uh, rights are violated. Schools also. Um, thousands of schools have been destroyed in Yemen today. Over two million children have no access to schools now. And some of them have schools if they go to under trees. Because that's safer than being in a building. And uh, in November of last year, the Saudi decided to seal Yemen completely. So they were allowing some up to 10%, 20%, up to whatever they want. And in November, they sealed it completely. So border closure shuts down. This is ICRC, down water sewage system. Also, that's in the middle of a cholera outbreak. U.S. role on, in the war in Yemen. U.S. Saudi Arabia sealed weapons deal worth 110 billion immediately and 350 billion over 10 years. That's a half a trillion dollars new weapons sale to the Saudi Arabia not counting what they already sold them. Imagine, half a trillion dollars. The Saudi could support Yemeni with a fraction of that and all the Yemenis will be on their side. Does Donald Trump know he's helping Saudi Arabia ruin Yemen? This is the national interest. So why should we care? Because there is a Lehi um, law that says, if the US government knows that it's selling weapons to a country that's committing war crimes, then the U.S. government would be responsible. This is uh, from the New York Times, stopped unconstitutional war in Yemen. The U.S. Um, the Congress has not authorized the U.S. to be engaged in a war in Yemen. So it is unconstitutional. Trump may be helping create a famine in Yemen. Congress could stop him. So what can we do as American citizens? We can reach out to our representatives in Washington and the White House and ask them to express our concerns, ask them to stop supporting Saudi war in Yemen without the refueling, the mid-air refueling. The Saudis will have to halt it today. We need to pressure Saudi Arabia to end the blockade and we need to use diplomacy for political solutions. You can also donate to any organization that's doing work in Yemen, ICRC is doing work in Yemen, Oxfam, UNICEF, whatever you want. Also, Yemen Relief and Reconstruction that I'm responsible for is also doing that. Please sign uh, petitions. There are a lot of petitions going around. Find them and sign them because that's how we express our concern about what's happening in Yemen. So what have we done with Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation? The website is yemenfoundation.com. We distribute food baskets. So and in January, we distributed 850 food baskets to uh, 850 families. Each food basket lasts a family of five for one month, and it costs $30. Uh, and the, these are just from the, the distribution that we did in January. We've, so far, since we started, uh, we've distributed over 5,000 food baskets in Yemen. And Yemen Foundation you know, puts, uses no money that's donated. All of it goes to Yemen. And of course, we also donate to the cause. Uh, we also distribute school bags, supplies, and coats because Yemen uh, is very mountainous. There are areas in Yemen that the temperature would be minus four uh, degrees centigrade. So we uh, also provide blankets and foods uh, and jackets for school children. This is what I have. I have a lot more uh, that I can share with you, but uh, I hope I can answer some questions. Dr. Aisha Juman is the president of Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. That website is YemenFoundation.com. YemenFoundation.com. I'm John Schock. This is Progressive Spirit. You're listening to a panel discussion recorded at Portland State University on February 3rd, 2018. It was called the U.S.-Saudi Coalition, Bringing Peace or War. You just heard Dr. Aisha Juman make a presentation on the Saudi war on Yemen. Up next, Mohammed Al-Nimr will discuss the history of the House of Saud and its connection with terrorism and Wahhabi fundamentalism. Stay with us.
Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click donate. Co-sponsored by KBOO Community Radio in Portland and Roots of Conflict based in Seattle, this presentation at Portland State University exposed the war on Yemen, which has left 21 million people facing starvation. This war caused by the Saudis and assisted by the United States, according to my speakers, and the United Kingdom is part of a larger coalition of death and destruction by the United States and the Saudis. Muhammad al-Nimr is the son of executed Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr. Nimr al-Nimr was a Shia clerk imprisoned and executed by the Saudi government for speaking out against Saudi abuses. His son, Muhammad, tells his story and the history of the formation of Saudi Arabia and the intimate connections with the United States and the U.K. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schuck. Our next speaker is Muhammad al-Namir. He's the only son of executed Sheikh Nimr al-Namir. He's been in the United States for the past six years and has earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Since his father's execution, Muhammad has participated in many conferences around the United States, giving several speeches and exposing the involvement of the Saudi regime in spreading terrorism around the world, especially in the Middle East. Muhammad al-Namir. I'm from the city of Awamiya, which is located at the eastern province of the Arabian Peninsula, also called right now Saudi Arabia. I come to the United States in 2010 as a student, and I come right now before you to speak about the aggression and the crime against humanity the Saudi Kingdom is perpetrating against Middle Eastern countries and nations, including but not limited to. Yemen, Syria, Bahrain, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. On a side note, the Saudi government is also committing similar crimes in my hometown, as well as the other eastern province, Providence uh, city. In the last six months, the Saudi government demolished more than 488 homes in Awamiya. They displaced more than 2,000 families. That's the cause was only that their big vehicle, military vehicle, cannot go through the woods where these houses are located. Their terror is not just for other nations. They seek to commit heinous, heinous acts within, within to exterminate those, who, those whom they deem different. These terroristic acts of the worst nature. For example, before I finish this speech, a child in Yemen will have died due to continuous Saudi-led coalition. As Dr. Aisha stated, every 10 minutes, of which has been ongoing for three years, such atrocities are unimaginable, yet they are very real. According to the human rights organization, Save the Children, in 2017 alone, more than 50,000 children, 50,000 children had died in Yemen due to the conflict, which would equate to about 137 children every day. Though this in and of itself is truly horrific and inhuman. The Saudi's terror does not end there. For those children who struggle to survive in Yemen, the daily hardships are almost unbearable. As I speak, more than 400,000 children in Yemen 
are suffering from acute malnutrition. They are de denied food. The Saudi coalition has actively blocked any aid, food, medicine, financial, from reaching the Yemenis, which, as I stated, include the most vulnerable of the population, the children. There is no mercy. There is no mercy, and it's the children who are the indicators of this effect of the Saudi-led terror. For some of you, hearing such statistic and fact is heart-wrenching. It's difficult. It's difficult to even speak such thing knowing that such atrocity is allowed to continue. The Yemeni crisis and genocide is unfortunately a fact and one that we must acknowledge so we can put an end to it. All of us together working can advance the quality of life for the oppressed around the world and work to ensure the implementation and respect of human rights globally. We are tasked with resolving and ending this ongoing crisis. To tackle this issue, let us dig down to its root, the objective of gaining short-term benefits in the geopolitical power, disregarding the long-term consequences. The event that set in motion this issue was the fall of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire has fallen around nine, after the World War II, but around, but around 1950, at that time, the British Empire starts influencing the region with British imperialism. At that time, Ibn Saud, which later called founder of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, was motivated by the ideology of Wahhabism, as the British claimed, to create the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia over the Arabian Peninsula. In reality, though, in reality, although that was unethical, the British, and as they, their documentation released, the British supported Ibn Saud with weapon, money, and even military experts to aid in defeating the Ottoman Empire ally in the Arabian Peninsula. In the middle and northern region of the Arabian Peninsula, there was a government called Ibn Rashid. And in the southern region, or the two holy city, Mecca and Al-Medina, it was governed, governed by Al-Sharif Hussein. The British promised the Sharif Hussein that if he go against the Ottoman Empire, if he helped him control the region, they would give him an Arab nation, a united Arab nation. At the same time, they promised the Zionists that they're going to give them a homeland in Palestine. Al-Sharif Hussein fulfilled his promise and he went against the Ottoman Empire. Although uh, Ibn Rashid did not do that, they threatened Ibn Rashid that if he doesn't accept and acknowledge Palestine as the city of Israel, as the, the city of the Zionists, they would unleash Ibn Saud against him. Al-Sharif Hussein also denied the promise or Balfour Declaration of the British and he refused to acknowledge uh, Palestine as the homeland of Israel. So they stopped supporting Al-Sharif Hussein, the British, although they supported him at, at first to go against the Ottoman Empire. And they stopped, so they stopped supporting him and they start increasing the support of Ibn Saud, although Ibn Saud was using these Wahhabist fanatics to control the region. After World War II, the British were no, were no longer in a position to maintain interest in the region, which include the said proposed Jewish state and Ibn Saud Wahhabist conquer of the Arabian Peninsula. At that point, the United States in a new founder position to seek geopolitical power, 
took up the interest and continue where the British left off. And ultimately allowed Ibn Saud's dream to come into reality. The, reala the realization of the way that Ibn Saud found the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Zionists found the Israel state could give us a glance and understanding and realization of the problem that we are facing right now. The story of Ibn Saud as the story of the Zionists does not stop with the story of removal and genocide of native civilians. Ibn Saud and his Wahhabist military disseminate entire cities and villages and their people, women, children, elderly, unarmed civilian. The Wahhabi militants even went to mosques where people took shelter from the warfare and they slaughtered everyone in that mosque. If you see what ISIS is doing right now or what they were doing before they lose lots of power, Ibn Saud did the same thing when he formed Saudi Arabia. So they are not doing a new thing. And even the literature that Ibn Saud proudly ordered his scholar to write acknowledge these facts. They are in Arabic, but it's easily to be easily translated in English. And if anyone is interested in that, I can provide these sources for him. It's crucial to note that the action of Zionists do not reflect the peaceful religion of Judaism, nor do the acts of Wahhabism, as, included, as including their state of Saudi Arabia, reflect in any manner the religion of Islam. Both recent movements, they haven't been here for more than 100 years, were driven by geopolitical interest, and that are still seeking short-term benefits from bigger power like United States while disregarding long-term consequences. This is contrary to the religious doctrines of which each claim to follow. Till this day, we see the, con the, the corruptive use of said ideologies used in attempt to legitimize the, the affirmation acts of political gain. When the United States was in conflict with the Soviet Union. During the Cold War, the United States, through the Saudi government, supported the Taliban with money and weapon and effort, uh, an effort to fight against the Soviet communists in the Afghanistan region. This resulted in a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and Pakistan, of which exists still to this day. Just Last week, in Kabul, there was two explosions, lots of death because of this act. Nowadays, when we hear about terrorism, we must acknowledge that such group, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, are the same group that the United States originally had shown geopolitical interest in during the 1990s. This interest had allowed for, the, for, for this group to spread and continue their chaos throughout the world. If we are going to think about all the terrorist attacks that had occurred in the US and UK, Syria, France, Germany, Iraq, all over the world, in fact, we have to acknowledge that the British Empire supported the race of Ibn Saud and his fanatics Wahhabist, and when the CIA supported Taliban through the Saudi, the Saudi government in the 1990s, they were part of the cause of the suffering of millions of innocent people. It's dangerous to ignore the fact that the government of Saudi Arabia is practicing and spreading the finance and financing the dangerous ideology of Wahhabism all over the world through mosques, scholars, while other nations like United States either turn blind eye to that or support these dangerous practices. For example, the United States is selling weapons and providing intelligence for the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen, which has cost the Yemenis more than 10,000 lives in a direct attack by the bombing. As, stated, as I stated earlier, more than 50,000 children have died due to the conflict. The justification that the Saudi is using 
to fuel the and legitimize the conflict is their intolerance ideology of Wahhabism, which is the same method used by Ibn Saud to eradicate entire cities from existence. Wahhabi scholars have been sent to the front line in Yemen, and Dr. Aisha can confirm that, to feed these soldiers this ideology and to give them the reason to kill these innocent people in Yemen. Such facts are not secret. They are easy to find online, YouTube, and they are not shy to show them, but they are in Arabic. The only barrier between the American and other nations to know them is the, the language barrier. While this information may seem like far-fetched fiction, it's a reality, and one that we must acknowledge in order to find solution. As a human being, the first thing we we should take in consideration that democracy come at a price. As long as we are in United States, we have the freedom of speech and the right to elect the representative at all level. We are obliged to act responsibly and take an active role in democracy to end this cycle of violence by closing the valve of the financing of this evil groups and hold accountable anyone supporting them either by weapon or money. The Canadian, the Canadian and German and Finland governments acted responsibly by, by ceasing the sale of weapons to the Saudi government because they saw the dangers of putting weapons in the hand of these fanatics. They saw the suffering of the Yemenis. They saw the genocide of the Yemenis. Now it's our turn to influence the United States government by practicing in the democracy. We must choose to seize the selling of weapons and seize the supporting of the Saudi kingdom and other dictatorship now and, for and forever to ensure peace throughout the world. The means do not justify the end. Short-term gain does not justify long-term suffering. It's up to us to ensure that we work together for our humanity, for our nation, to ensure the best resulting in the long run. If not now, when? And if not here with this democracy and freedom of speech in the United States, then where? And if not us, who has the power to do this, then who? Thank you. You just heard Muhammad Al-Nimer and earlier Dr. Aisha Juman. They spoke at a presentation at Portland State University on February 3rd called U.S.-Saudi Coalition, Bringing Peace or War. Now we move to the question and answer session. Uh, I want to thank you guys for coming, first of all. And uh, it seemed to me when Obama drew his red line, the American people were, were pretty much fed up with any kind of forward intervention. That is, until ISIS appeared. I was wondering if you guys knew of any evidence that ISIS is a tool of the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Israel. And I was also curious about Yemen Foundation. I was wondering how they get around the embargo to say through the Yemen. In terms of uh, how do we get food to Yemen, uh, unfortunately, the Yemeni, the Yemeni Saudi borders are controlled by the Saudis, and they allow smugglers to bring in some food. And because it's bought from Saudi Arabia, the food that comes in is extremely expensive. So we do not send food from here because we cannot guarantee that it will get to Yemen. What we do is we buy the food baskets in Yemen from the local markets that is being smuggled from Saudi Arabia for the population that we um, distribute food baskets to. Uh, about the evidence that uh, 
you asked about uh, the creation of ISIS. Uh, it's not an easy to create a militia as big as, as ISIS without uh, a country or, uh, or very wealthy country supporting the weapons, the cars, the intelligence, all these things. If, if we were at the 1990s, and I tell you that United States and the CIA were in the top of the operation of supporting Taliban, you wouldn't believe me. And now it's the same case. But there's lots of evidence, even right now, that shows that Saudi Arabia was buying weapons from European countries and shipping these weapons directly to ISIS. These weapons were bought from by Saudi officials, by the government, with the deals for the Saudi governments. But these weapons are not used by the Saudi uh, soldiers. They don't know how to use them. So they take the weapons, they uh, travel the weapons, and they send them to ISIS. Lots of these women have been caught and filmed in Syria, and they have even the, the, the tag numbers of the women, the, the, the shipping numbers, everything, which goes back to Saudi Arabia directly. First of all, I wanted to say thank you so much for this enlightening conference. Um, my question is regards towards um, the crown prince. Um, a lot of people in our generation, particularly among the millennials, view him as moderate, um, particularly towards his laws towards women and um, quote unquote getting rid of corruption. I was wondering what do you see his role being in the demise of Saudi Arabia? And in addition to that, um, it seems to me that we have an ideological war at hand um, with the Wahhabi ideology. Um, how do we prevent a future Saudi Arabia from coming out? Thank you. Well, uh, about the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman about what he's doing, he's, uh, he's actually not doing like the, the, let's say the campaign against corruption, he's not doing that. For the, the sake of uh, ending corruption, he's corrupted himself. He bought a, a, a painting for about $500 million. That's a painting. And then he bought a yacht for also $500 million. So that's that's a, a billion dollar spending on things that's not going to reward the, the country in any in any way. That's only rewarding him. So about corruption, he's only seeking to exterminate anyone who would in the future think about uh, uh, COVID against him or isolating him or affecting his power in the country. And about the women. The right of the woman to drive, it was going to come anyway. That's, that's not something that we can relate to. The, the international community has a pressure for the women's drive. The campaign was going on like for like five years. And at one point, they had they to give up. And if you can give up something small, that small, to get all this international prize, you would do it. And he did that. It's, uh, but if you go back for the laws against women, or I'm not going to say against women, the laws that's not uh, uh, in, in favor of women back in Saudi Arabia, there are lots of laws. And one basic law is any woman cannot travel without the permission of, uh, uh, of, her, of her guardian. Uh, he's not doing that much. And what's uh, the, the most important part of any country, if you want to deal with the problem, is making people part of the government. That's the real change. If you make any change, as you make the change as a, a governor or as, a, as a, a king, you can take that change back. But if the people are responsible for that change, you're not going to be able to take it back. So when he makes the decision, it's not the problem with the decision. You say, oh, there's a future with this man. It's not the problem with the decision. It's the problem in the way he makes the decision. If he wants really for the country to to have a good future, you should make the people participate in the decision, participate in electing their government, participate in uh, uh, choosing the right way of, uh, uh, of uh, changing the, the country. He, changed, he, not, he didn't also, uh, only go for women, also he went for uh, entertainment for lots of people. Lots of people are not happy with that too, because most of the country has perspective or has a specific way of uh
believing that entertainment should be in this way, which is uh, aligned with, the, let's say, with the, the vision of Islam. But the way he he is presenting entertainment to these people would show that he's not looking for the the show to be good for the people inside the country. No, he's looking for the people outside the country to look and say, oh, he's changing things, even if the people inside the country are uh, not like it. This was a special broadcast of Progressive Spirit. You heard a recording of a presentation by Dr. Aisha Juman and Muhammad Al-Nimer, sponsored by Roots of Conflict and Kabu Community Radio. This presentation was held at Portland State University on February 3rd, 2018. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm thrilled to welcome KBOG 97.9 in Bandon, Oregon, a beautiful spot on the Oregon coast. Catch Progressive Spirit every Sunday morning at 9 on 97.9 KBOG. Thanks also to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. The flagship stations, WETS Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC Emory, Virginia. Also, WPVM Asheville, North Carolina, Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania, KCEI Taos, New Mexico, KACR Alameda, California, WDRT Viroqua, Wisconsin, KSOW Cottage Grove, Oregon, KYAQ Newport, Oregon, and KZ88 Kabul, Missouri. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow also on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.